It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 42. On this day, June 28, 2015, we remember the 101st anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and the first anniversary of this podcast. To everyone who listens to the show, thank you. And to celebrate this week, I will be posting random facts about the show out to social media on Twitter and Facebook. So if you want to know how many times you have heard me say the word war, or how many hours you've been listening to my voice, or even the approximate number of cups of coffee I've drank while creating the show in the last year, you should follow the show at twitter.com slash historygreatwar or facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Last episode, we discussed the opening attacks of the Gorlitz-Tarnow Offensive, where Mackensen and his German and Austrian troops were able to punch a pretty significant hole through the Russian lines that forced the Russians to retreat several miles to the Son River in western Poland. During these attacks, they captured hundreds of thousands of men and put the Russians in an extremely precarious position. We start our episode today with a discussion of the Russian situation after the attacks in July 1915, before looking at what the German and Austrians planned to do to exploit it. We will then look at the three attacks that the Germans launched to try and recapture Warsaw and push the Russians out of Poland completely. Last week, I spoke pretty extensively about the situation of the Third Army that had borne the brunt of the attack of Mackensen's army. This week, I'm going to pull our map out a bit to talk about the Russian situation as a whole in their central sector, which ran roughly from the Carpathians in the south to the border between Russian Poland and East Prussia in the north. By mid-June, the situation all along this line can best be described as precarious. The defeats that the Russian armies had suffered in the south at the hands of Magnitsyn, and in the north at the hands of Ludendorff, had taken the situation that I would probably describe as okay and made it almost untenable. The Russians were pushed out into a salient that went west through Poland and pointed towards the center of Germany. Before Mackensen's advance, this salient had to be concerned with the forces in eastern Prussia, but now they also had to be concerned with the new German forces that had pushed in from the south. General Alexiev found himself in command of most of this line, having taken over some of it from Ivanov earlier in the summer. His line had been stripped of all the reserves, and they had been sent south, so the weight of the front had shifted decisively, from the north to the south. If you remember last week, we discussed head for retreat. These rumblings started even before the second wave of German attacks in the south, which had breached the Russian line along the Son River. At first, the group of leaders wanting to retreat was small, and they spoke quietly. But they would become more bold as the defeats mounted, and the situation deteriorated. These feelings were not without reason. There were three Russian armies in the salient in Poland, and if the Germans broke through in the north and south, it is likely that these three armies would be very quickly surrounded, and either forced to surrender or annihilated. 
If instead the Russians retreated before the Germans attacked, they could bring the troops out of their risky position and they could shorten their line, which would mean that their shortage of troops wouldn't be as painfully felt. In his book Eastern Front 1914-1917, Norman Stone describes some of the reasons that a retreat couldn't happen. In this quote, Norman Stone references Stavka, which is Russian high command. Quote, but Stavka shrunk from such a policy. It would mean letting the Germans take Poland. It would mean abandoning forward positions at the very moment the Western powers were likely to take the Dardanelles. Russia would lose her arguments for eventual annexation of Constantinople. Moreover, if the Italians, now, broke out into Austrian territory, Russia would maybe lose control of areas the future of which she desired to shape. End quote. To go along with the problem Stone outlines, there was also the fact that there were a string of fortresses built in Poland in the pre-war years, six of them in fact. These fortresses had been built specifically to hold the line against the German advance into Polish territory, and they contained almost 8,500 pieces of artillery, thousands of men, and countless shells. To abandon them in 1915 without a fight, when so much money and effort had been put into the fortresses, would have been to admit that all of that effort and money had been a waste. Abandoning them would mean that constructing them in the first place had been a mistake. Longtime listeners of the History of the Great War podcast may remember what happened to two other fortresses back in Belgium when the Germans came to take them. And if you remember the fates of Namor and Liège, then I'm sure you can extrapolate what might happen if the Russians were going to try and hold on to the fortresses. The two Russian commanders, Ivanov and Alexiev, seem to have agreed on very few things. But the necessity of Russian retreat was not one of them. Ivanov first suggested retreating all of the troops west of the Vistula to be instead behind the river, where further retreat would be far easier. In response, Russian high command gave more of Ivanov's front to Alexiev. When Alexiev then proceeded to suggest much the same thing, he was specifically forbidden from ordering the retreat out of fears that it would cause the Germans to attack. So right before the German attack, the Russians denied themselves the opportunity of a strategic movement that would have provided them the ability to offer a stronger resistance and a better opportunity to retreat when the inevitable German attack was launched. When the time came for an involuntary retreat, this decision would cost many lives. With the Russian situation covered, Let's turn once again to discussions amongst the German high command on what they wanted to do. This is the second large meeting on the subject, after the one in early June, which had resulted in the resumption of the attacks of Mackensen. Falkenhayn went into this meeting, of course, wanting only limited attacks in the east. He even, once again, floated the idea of pausing attacks on Russia to maybe see about the possibility of a separate peace. His real fear was that if the Germans attacked, and they were successful, the inertia of the attack would carry them into Russia. Falkenhayn would be quoted as saying, quote, The Russians can retreat into the vastness of their country, and we cannot go chasing after them forever and ever. End quote. He just really didn't want to get lost in an attack on Russia that would become an all-consuming adventure for the German army. This is probably an accurate assessment of what would have happened. 
Another interesting dynamic to consider in this regard, and I haven't been able to find out conclusively if Falkenheim believed this, or if this is some bit of a historical revisionism taking place, but if you look at the situation in Russia in 1915, you see a country that isn't exactly unified. Sure, the revolutionary spirit was not where it would be in the coming years, but it was already there. There is almost a revolution in 1905, and those sentiments hadn't completely went away. In many cases, there is nothing that unifies a country more than a foreign power invading it. It isn't unreasonable to believe that the overall morale and fortitude of the Russian soldiers would have slowly been ratcheted up as the Germans advanced into the Russian heartland. And then also there's just the problem that Russia's huge. The Kaiser did agree with Falkenhayn on the wisdom of not chasing the Russians all the way into Russian territory. Just the simple logistics of supplying an army on that distance was crazy. But the Kaiser would also not discuss the separate peace idea, and would look to others for the ideas of the attack. Ludendorff used this opportunity to once again float his idea for a huge offensive from two different directions, one launched from the south and one from the north, with the goal of cutting off all of the Russian troops in Poland. The specifics of this plan had actually been developed not by Ludendorff, but by Hoffman, of Tannenberg fame. Hoffman had apparently taken several hours on the night before the meeting to convince Ludendorff of the merits of the plan. Having been convinced by Hoffman that the plan was the best available, Ludendorff began planning and advocating for it in his usual enthusiastic manner. He even went so far as to tell Hoffman to have all of the troops ready so they could be launched into the attack as soon as the Kaiser's approval had been attained. The plan that Ludendorff presented involved the armies of the north and south marching first east and then pincering together to encircle all of the troops between them. The two armies would meet in eastern Poland, far east of Warsaw. While the plan was well received, over the course of the meeting, it was tamed down quite a bit, and the plan that would eventually result from the discussions would be a fair bit less ambitious than what Ludendorff had been proposing. The attack would be a three-pronged offensive that was designed to completely push the Russians out of Poland, but did not have a huge emphasis on encircling them. The three attacks would occur first in Galatia under the command of Mackensen, to the north of Warsaw on the Narev River under the command of General Galwitz, and finally Hindenburg and Ludendorff would attack in the north. The armies of the north and the south would meet somewhere on the River Bug in Poland. The removal of the opening move east of the northern and southern armies is pretty important because it greatly reduced the size of the sack in which the Russians could be encircled. Ludendorff at first strongly objected to the reduced scale of the attack. He was, however, forced to eventually accept the plan. It was still a very large operation that would require the Germans to abandon plans that had been made earlier in the year, which were to deal with Serbia in summer 1915, and it definitely meant that Conrad could not do anything against Italy anytime soon. So now the die had been cast, and on July 12th, three German attacks would be launched, one driving south, one driving north, and one driving west. We will cover them in that order, starting first with the attacks in the north, and then moving to the south, and finally to the attacks in the center. We start with discussions of actions in Courland. Last week we covered the initial German advance into the area, but this week we will talk about the next set of operations. Ludendorff believed that a large attack should be launched out of Courland against Russia, 
because it would have much the same effect as a deep advance in the south, because it would threaten the entire Russian line. Falkenhayn did not think that this was even remotely close to a good idea. Courland wasn't well developed, and it was there were serious issues with moving large groups of men in the area, and of course keeping them supplied. There were very few roads and almost no railroads, and this meant that maintaining much mobility was almost impossible. In a broader sense, critics of Ludendorff point to ideas like this proposed offensive as evidence of his unrealistic visions for offensives that could have never succeeded. It is also interesting to see that it was often Falkenhayn, Ludendorff's greatest nemesis, that was responsible for tempering the scale of Ludendorff's offensive, which probably played at least some part in preserving his reputation as a commander. It is one of those interesting what-ifs, that if Falkenhayn had really wanted to see the star of Hindenburg and Ludendorff drop a few pegs, he could have let one of these large offensives take place, with the knowledge that it had a pretty reasonable chance of failure. Not that any operation doesn't have a reasonable chance of failure, but these were higher than most. And through the failure, maybe the public's faith in the duo would have been lessened. This would, of course, have been very selfish of Falkenhayn. Lots of material and casualties would have went into the move, but it would have maybe been possible. But for their part, the Russians were mostly concerned that a further German attack would threaten Riga and Kovno. These locations were about 170 miles apart, and being concerned with the safety of both meant that it required a lot of troops to defend both of them and to have enough in the middle to keep them safe. Alexeyev didn't want to move any more troops into the area, citing the fact that the Russians already outnumbered the Germans in the area, and there were other places in the line that were far more at risk. He also, however, was getting pressure from the Russian general staff, especially a General Yanuskevich, to move more troops into the area, out of concern for losing more of the Baltic coast. Yanuskevich, in fact, wanted Alexeyev to send his premier unit, maybe the best one under his command, in the form of the Guards Corps, comprised of 27,000 men, into Courland to defend against the Russian attack. Alexeyev instead planned to use the Guards Corps as his primary means of covering the retreat of his other troops in Poland. Due to Alexeyev's reluctance to follow requests from his superiors, it was decided that maybe Alexeyev couldn't command as much of the front as he currently was in charge of, and therefore there was a new front created, the Northern Front, which would be put under the command of General Ruski, the general who had been in charge of the disaster at the Masurian Lakes in early 1915. While this was obviously a demotion of sorts for Alexeyev, in reality, I doubt he minded too much. It wasn't like he wasn't busy with trying to keep his men from being encircled and annihilated in central Poland during this time. Anytime there is a command change for any unit in a wartime situation, there's often a bit of confusion while the new commander moves in and figures out the situation. This confusion wasn't helped by the fact that Alexeyev pretty much just washed his hands of the whole situation in the north as soon as he heard about what was going to happen, even before Ruski had time to take over. It was around this time that the Germans decided to launch their attack, because that's what the Germans do. One of the areas that the Germans really focused on was the fortress of Kovno. The fortress complex of Kovno was manned by around 90,000 men, and they had at their disposal 1,300 guns. In theory, it was a large, formidable series of forts and entrenchments. It did, however, much like many of the fortresses we have discussed so far, have some serious weaknesses. It had been initially designed and built in 1880, and artillery had changed a lot since that date. 
The fortress also hadn't been kept in good repair or improved much for most of the time between its construction and the start of the war. This meant that when the Germans came a-knocking, there was, for example, one fort where there was only a single brick emplacement to house a single battery, and all the rest of the guns were in the open and exposed. There also weren't barracks for the extra troops necessary in a siege situation to defend the guns. Instead, there were just enough for the peacetime complement plus a few extras. When you are talking about moving in tens of thousands of men to man the trenches and fortifications, the lack of space to house them becomes a problem. Also, none of the communication lines between the forts were buried underground, so they were very quickly cut by the German bombardment, and this would keep most of the forts from being able to sort of interact during the siege. In situations like this, the German bombardment of the fortifications couldn't help but be amazingly effective. The defenders put up a very good fight, though, even though they were outgunned. The defenders of the first three forts to be focused by the Germans held out for a few days, which I think is actually really good but they were finally forced to capitulate with very high casualties when the Germans brought in their huge siege guns. After the fort started falling, a chain reaction began, and they began to surrender faster and faster. After the first few surrenders, the commander of the defense fled from the scene, reportedly being chased by the police. The German 10th Army, who was now in charge of the attack, took over the complex, capturing all of the guns and 850,000 artillery shells. At this point, a huge gap developed between Ruski's two armies, which had been centered on Riga and Kovno. This gap was made worse by Ruski's fears of a German attack against St. Petersburg, then called Petrograd. The gap that developed was 50 miles wide, and it was only patrolled by a meager force of Russian cavalry. It was ripe for a German attack. Alexeyev refused to give more troops to Ruski, this being after the attacks in central Poland had begun, and he was far more concerned with getting his army out in one piece than helping Ruski with his mistakes. So we will leave the rest of the tale of Courland and the shattered Russian northern lines until next week, when Ludendorff launches his final 1915 offensive. In the south, we visit Mackinson's army that was doing Mackinson things, as it started up its attacks again. There wasn't too much different this time, except that this time they were heading almost straight north instead of east. Conrad wanted Mackinson and his army to be marching further to the east and to hopefully trap more Russian forces, but he was almost completely ignored by Mackinson and Falkenhayn. This moment is the picture-perfect moment to describe the hierarchical organization in which Mackinson was technically under the command of Conrad, but never really listened to him. Overall, Falkenhayn left the specifics of the attacks up to Mackinson and is quoted as saying, quote, It is endlessly less important where Mackinson and the Bug Army break through than they should merely break through somewhere, end quote. The Bug Army was the name of the forces attacking in the south, named after the river that they were pushing towards. Falkenhayn was correct in his assessment that the Germans only had to achieve a decisive breakthrough somewhere to begin a chain reaction along the front. Mackinson now had 33.5 German divisions under his command, and eight more Austrian divisions joining in the attack on the right. On the front that they were attacking, there was roughly an equal number of Russian divisions. For these new attacks, Mackinson didn't change his tactics very much. Heavy concentration of artillery fire in the center, with the intent of raining as much weight of fire on the enemy as possible, and then a push straight through. No flanking maneuvers or fancy footworks in the attacks. It had worked once, so why change it now? 
the continued reluctance of Russian commanders to either order a retreat or provide their men with suitable defenses assisted the Germans in the attack greatly. The Russians hadn't been in their current positions long, but even so they were underprepared from where they could have been once the German attack came. Mackensen began the attack by moving towards Ludblin and Chom, and he had captured both of them before the end of July. The Russians were getting bludgeoned all along the front, and their tendency to not order retreats was soon causing them to lose far men far faster than they could be replaced in the line. By the end of July, Alexiev, who was now the commander of the area, was constantly being asked by the Russian general staff why his army was doing so poorly in its fighting. After all, it was a huge new army that had been assembled and put in place specifically to keep Mackensen bottled up in his positions. The entire front had been robbed of reinforcements to make this happen, and yet it wasn't stopping the German advance. Alexiev would tell High Command, quote, You appear not to appreciate the situation regarding the 3rd and 13th armies on Mackensen's front. In numbers, they are now insignificant, exhausted in an extreme degree, and capable of further resistance. End quote. The result of the battles were casualty figures that seem much like what happened during the first week of the Gorlitch Tarnow offensive. The Russian 10th Corps was down to 4,000 total men. The two armies facing Mackensen were short of their full number by 180,000 men. Even the luckiest of the divisions found themselves in the path of Mackensen would end up losing half of their strength. We now turn to the third and last of the attacks that we will discuss today that of General Galwitz and his German troops along and over the Nerev River, with the goal of marching on and capturing Warsaw. For this purpose, Galwitz had ten and a half divisions under his command and over a thousand artillery pieces. While capturing Warsaw was the objective, it was also hoped that the Russians would try to defend the city and its surrounding fortifications, which would give the other German armies the ability to wrap around and behind the defenders. I feel like in these episodes, I've referenced the events of early 1915 about 20 times, but here's another one to add to the list. If you remember back in February, the Germans had tried to take Warsaw, but their offensive had stalled out before they could reach the city. The same goals had been set for that offensive, and the plan was pretty much the same for the attack. The one advantage Galwitz had was of course the current Russian situation, when he launched his attack on July 13th. The Russians were under no illusions about the strength of the force that Galwitz was attacking into. Just seven divisions and 350 guns was a weak force to face the German onslaught. Alexiev had been trying to move some reinforcements into the area, but just didn't have time to get things sorted out before the Germans launched their attack. The Germans, in what I can only assume was a purposeful move, attacked right at the junction between two Russian armies, with a bombardment that was, as usual, very disruptive. On the first day of the attack, there was already a two-mile-wide gap in the Russian front, with not very much in front of the Germans but the Polish countryside. General Litvinov, the commander of one of the Russian armies involved, ordered his men to fight and die where they stood instead of retreating, and they died. A lot. The two closest Russian reserve corps were moved in the direction of the attack, but when they arrived they were not held together as large units, and were instead handed piecemeal to the two army commanders. In the four days of attacks, the Germans managed to capture 24,000 prisoners, which is a very small number when compared to the prisoner numbers I've been throwing out over the last few episodes, but there were far fewer men involved in these actions on the Nerev. Alexiev, realizing the situation, ordered all of his troops back to the Nerev River, 
where he hoped that the waterway would offer some protection from the oncoming Germans. The same General Litvinov was not optimistic about his army's chances at their new positions, quote, My army will be unable to hold out for long on this new line. It has not been fortified, and its right flank is altogether unsuitable for defense, end quote. Even with the weakness of these new positions, the Russians did have one advantage. As they fell back, they met more and more reinforcements. By the time that the Russians had reached the river, the Germans had lost any numerical superiority that they had at the beginning of the offensive. There were nearly double the Russians in the lines on the Nerev when you compare to what had been in the line at the beginning of the attack. Even though Galwitz still believed that his men could push through to Warsaw, when they attacked the Russian line, they were stopped. Really, in a vacuum, it's pretty likely that the Russians could have held the line on the Nerev against any German attack that could have been launched at them with the resources that Galwitz had under his command. Unfortunately for the Russians, none of these actions were happening in a vacuum. In the south, Mackensen's attack north was making great progress, and if the Russian troops stayed to defend against the German attacks, it is very likely that they would have been cut off. Therefore, it was decided by Alexiev and the Russian high command that the men should retreat to the Vistula River. With the decision to retreat to the Vistula, the Russians were also forced to abandon Warsaw, and Alexiev was told to start the evacuation of the city. Alexiev began evacuating his troops from around Warsaw as quickly as possible, a feat that probably wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the fact that the Russian formations were at half strength. On August the 4th, the Germans entered the city. And that's all for this week. Next week, we will continue covering the Russian retreat from their Polish salient as they try to stay one step ahead of their German pursuers. The tale of the Russian retreat will be coming to an end next week, with the exhaustion of the German attack and the Russians making a critical command change. We will also, of course, talk at length about the consequences of the massive Russian defeat in the East. Before we end this episode, though, I solicited some questions on the Facebook page to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the show. The first question was around my plans for covering the war at sea, from one of the first people to ever like the page on Facebook, Brad. Well, Brad, yes, and it will be soon. In about three to four episodes, after we take a little Italian excursion, we should be covering quite a bit about the naval actions up to this point in the war. The last time we talked about naval actions, I was quite brief, as I often was in episodes last year. In the coming episodes, we will talk at length about the great adventure of Admiral Spee and his little fleet. We will talk about the mysterious British Room 40 and the Battle of Dogger Bank and also the frustration on all sides that the hugely expensive navies had not managed to find a decisive battle. I will also have an episode dedicated to submarines that is currently penciled in for later in this year, but that's still a little foggy. The second question comes from listener William, who asks about a very specific source, Myth of the Great War, A New Military History of World War I, which I have read, although it was probably about a decade ago. The book actually holds a very special place in the genesis of this podcast, because I remember, after reading it, um, being a bit confused about how much it contradicted other sources that I had read about the events in the war. This caused me to fall deeper into the research hole. There are a lot of pieces of Mosier's work that I don't think I agree with, but it is at least an interesting perspective, since so many histories out there swing very hard in support of the British. 
Mosier takes a very different approach to his history, and definitely swings very hard in the other direction. I've already started the source list for 1916, I like to think ahead, and thanks to the donations of listeners, the source list will be greatly expanded. I will just have to see if Myth of the Great War makes the list. And speaking of lists, I'm hoping very soon to be done with a website redesign that I've been poking around on for a while, that will focus on a much greater emphasis on the source list for the show. The current site doesn't make for an easy browsing experience for episodes and sources, but hopefully the new one will be far superior, with the ability to properly filter sources by year, topic, and episode. Also, if any listeners have a favorite book about the war, let me know on Facebook, Twitter, or through email. There are thousands and thousands of books on the war, and I can't pretend to have read a tenth of a tenth of one percent of them, so I'm always up for hearing about a cool book from some obscure author on some obscure subject. With the questions out of the way, I think it's time to call year one of the History of the Great War podcast complete. I'd like to thank everyone who has listened to the last 42 episodes, and hopefully you will continue listening for many more. Hopefully you will join us again next week, as we finish our series on the Great Russian Retreat of 1915. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! This is Carl off his motorcycle. Balsa wood is very different than teak. People confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.